This past week at General Conference, there were a total of four plans that were put forward. Of those four plans, two were selected as high priorities through the legislative process. One of those plans was called the One Church Plan. This plan was supported by a majority of the bishops and was the result of work that was done over the last three years by the specially formed Commission on a Way Forward. In essence, this plan would have allowed the global church to operate as our local church does. I know from personal discussions with many of you that we are, all not, we are not all of one mind on the topic of human sexuality. In fact, I know that we are not all of one mind on any theological position. Nonetheless, as a congregation, we are able to be respectful of one another in our disagreements. Despite our differences, we still do our best to welcome all people as children of God. This is what the One Church Plan would have done. It would have allowed each annual conference around the world to be true to their context and their conscience without forcing others to share the same belief. The second plan that was deemed high priority is known as the traditionalist plan. This plan would retain the discriminatory language in our book of discipline while also increasing punishments for those pastors that perform same-sex weddings, increasing punishments for those bishops who would ordain LGBTQ individuals, and increasing scrutiny of candidates for ministry to ensure that no LGBTQ people manage to slip through the process. This plan also encourages those who do not agree with this position to leave the church. This second plan is the plan that passed at General Conference. What that means at this time is uncertain. Prior to the final vote, the Judicial Council released a decision that declared approximately half the petitions of the traditionalist plan to be in violation of the Constitution of the United Methodist Church. We will not know until after the next meeting of the Judicial Council on April 25th and 26th whether any of the amendments from the floor made this plan any more legal. It is extremely, like, extremely likely that the most punitive measures of this plan will still be unconstitutional. In practice, what this means is that after three years of work by the Commission on a Way Forward, and millions of dollars spent to gather delegates from around the world, we are still near the status quo. LGBTQ Methodists will face greater scrutiny, their allies may face harsher punishment, but for the most part, the UMC, especially in this country, is as divided as it ever was. In the coming months, I would expect to see clergy that surrender their credentials over this vote. I would expect to see, and we have already seen, pastors, theologians, congregation, conferences, and entire jurisdictions announced their intentions to remain inclusive of all people. I would expect there to be discussion among the 93 affiliated colleges and universities as to whether they can remain affiliated with a denomination whose standards violate their statements of inclusion. In short, I would brace for things to get uglier in the United Methodist Church before they get better. Just so that you all know where I stand, I am deeply grieved over the decision reached by General Conference. How could I get up here every week and proclaim that God is love and not be hurt by the decision of our denomination to try and choose who deserves that love? At the beginning of last month, I started wearing this rainbow cross in the hopes that by this time, our church would be more inclusive to our LGBTQ siblings in Christ. Now I will wear it until that becomes a reality. I know too many deeply devoted Methodists who are part of the LGBTQ community to accept anything else.
I know that some of you will continue to disagree with me on this, and I would love to sit down with you and explain my position. But I also don't demand that you agree with me on every theological position that I take. What matters to me is that as a congregation, we continue to be a place of welcome for all of God's children, and that even in our disagreements, we continue to do the work of the kingdom so that together we can truly live into the mission statement of the United Methodist Church to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. I also have a letter here from Bishop Bard that he would like read. Sisters and brothers in Christ in the Michigan United Methodist Church, the much anticipated special called session of the General Conference has come to an end. The days leading up to the General Conference were filled with hope and prayer. Not all of the hopes were realized as people had differing hopes. Not all the prayers were answered in the way people hoped because people were praying for different outcomes. The United Methodist Church will maintain its stance on human sexuality. In addition, enhanced enforcement provisions were approved as a way to encourage pastors, bishops, and churches to follow disciplinary requirements. The plan encourages those who disagree with these positions to consider leaving to form another Methodist organization. It is not yet clear which of these provisions will be ruled constitutional or how they may be implemented. What is clear is that many LGBTQ persons find this language hurtful and feels it leaves them on the margins of our church life. We need to acknowledge that hurt and pain and sadness which is shared by their family members. People who are hoping for more space for LGBTQ persons are deeply disappointed. I invite us to remember that our Book of Discipline acknowledges that all people are of sacred worth and that remains fundamental. The plan approved will likely mean additional conversation and perhaps voting at our annual conference, but again, much remains to be sorted out. We need to acknowledge the entire range of feelings people are experiencing and the varying reactions people are having. I would invite us to acknowledge the reactions without becoming reactive. Part of being human is to know what it is like to experience a gut level flight or fight response. I invite us to move through that to a fuller human response that engages our feelings, our thinking, our pondering, and our praying. If you feel you need to take some action about your place within the UMC, I invite you to wait. Nothing, be done, nothing need be done right now. There are many unanswered questions that need to be answered. I will communicate more in the coming days and weeks, providing additional information about what happened and possible next steps. In inviting us to a more fully human response, I am inviting us to reach deep into our hearts and souls to embody Christian virtues of a humble mind, a tender heart, and mutual affection. Saint Irenaeus once wrote that the glory of God is a human person, fully formed, fully alive. In this difficult moment, may we give glory to God by, in God's grace, calling forth our best and deepest selves. Grace and peace, Bishop David Bard, Michigan Episcopal Area. Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 21 through 36. 
he sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then he said to them all, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world, but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen, Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. The Gospel of the Lord. Author of life, we thank you for your words this morning, and we ask that as we reflect upon them, your spirit would be with us so that we might be transformed in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. The lectionary would have had us pick up the story of Christ's life today as he goes up the mountain to pray with Peter, James, and John. But I think it's essential for us to understand the context of this episode the story of the transfiguration, the revelation of Jesus' ultimate glory, takes place after the revelation of Jesus' coming death. It is only in the light of the coming suffering that we truly appreciate the glory of Jesus' power. It is only in the context of Jesus' teaching that followers of Christ must be prepared for a life of hardship that we appreciate the commitment it takes to be welcomed into the grace of God. 
In the wake of the vote at General Conference this week, I'm struck by how powerful this message is today, partly because Jesus' very words here were used as a weapon against our LGBTQ siblings in Christ. In foretelling his death, Jesus warns that his followers must be prepared to pick up a cross and bear it daily. There are those who profess to follow our Lord Jesus Christ who would rather tell others to pick up a cross than stop to ask what cross they need to bear. Those same people seem to miss the fact that in the story of Christ, they would have been the religious authorities who persecuted him for violating the norms of the temple. They seem to miss the fact that they are now the arbiters of power who seek any measure, no matter how punitive, to exclude others from the love of God. They seem to overlook that their words and their actions contribute to the deaths of their siblings in Christ who take their own lives because the pain of living in a community that hates them is too unbearable. Further, I am struck by the end of Jesus' foretelling of his death where he says to his disciples, but truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom. I saw the kingdom this week. It was not in the voting bar of the general conference. It was not in the bishop who wanted queer observers arrested for voicing their presence. It was not in the centrist observer who called the police on his LGBTQ siblings. No, I tell you, the kingdom was manifest in the hall outside the general conference. It was made real by the LGBTQ activists who worshiped in response to the passage of the most anti-queer legislation in the history of the United Methodist Church. As the voting delegates told them that they were not worthy of the love of God, they turned to their God in prayer and song. And as, a, as the conference drew to a close, the voting delegates had to skip their closing worship because their business had taken too long. Meanwhile, outside, the prayer and song continued from those who were deemed unworthy of serving God. And so, we come to the transfiguration. Jesus takes three of his trusted messengers up the mountain with him to pray. And as he prays, he becomes something else. His face changes, his clothes become dazzling white, and then he is joined by Moses and Elijah. He is joined, in other words, by the epitome of the law and the prophets. And with these two, he speaks of his coming death. Just being in the presence of these figures seems to exhaust the apostles who have become weighed down with sleep. And then, right as they're about to leave, Peter opens his mouth and says, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And in that moment, Peter embodies the church a lot more than we would like to admit. In that moment, Peter is saying, what I have seen is incredible. Let's bottle it up and leave it here. But the thing that Peter fails to grasp and the thing that we would do well to remember is that the power of the Holy Spirit cannot be captured in any particular time and place. 
As much as we would like to think that our institutions represent the Holy Spirit, we have to be willing to admit that the Spirit is, be is bigger than any particular congregation or denomination. And when our institutions fail to react to the movement of the Spirit, it is time for us to follow our Christ to the cross. It is time for us to accept that death is the only way for resurrection to happen. When we get caught up in worrying about our institutional survival, we end up being like Peter. We stop seeing the incredible nature of the Spirit in front of us because we're so busy planning on how to build that tent. And don't get me wrong, I love the United Methodist Church. It's the church that raised me as a child and the church that helped me hear my call to ministry. But we have to be willing to confess that there is a fundamental brokenness in the way that we go about being the church. I love the concept of holy conferencing. I strongly believe that when Christians gather together in prayer and dialogue, the spirit can move in unbelievable ways. But if any of you have been to annual conference, you know that there is little room for the spirit. Every minute of each day is scheduled with presentations, committee meetings, and legislative debate. I think if the spirit wanted a chance to speak, it would have to get to a microphone for a point of order. And I'm not alone in this observation. In a call to repentance drafted by members of the United Methodist Young Clergy Women Collective, and signed by clergy and laity from across the connection, the following confession is made. We confess that the leadership of our church has too often hidden behind the Book of Discipline and Robert's Rules of Order, and that we have used and abused these texts to harm one another. If we want to be a truly spirit-filled church, we have to die to the ways that we have done business. We have to be more intentional about making space for the spirit to enter into our hearts and our souls. We also have to be willing to confess that there is a laziness in the way that we approach scripture. For over two centuries, the heresy of fundamentalism has infected our churches. This approach would have us believe that every word of the Bible is meant literally. In reality, what it lets us do is pick and choose the words of Christ that matter to us, that reinforce our pre-existing worldviews, and claim that those words are meant literally. Scriptural fundamentalism runs counter to over two millennia of scriptural interpretation. It is a form of reading scripture that would be unrecognizable to Wesley, to Luther, to Augustine, even to Christ himself. This anemic Bible reading practice is further corroded by an over-reliance on English translations. So many of those who are quick to proclaim, this is what the Bible says, have never actually read it in the original language. They rely on the translations that are written by those with the same worldview as their own. And so we must die to the simplistic understanding of scripture that such a worldview produces. We must bear the cross of doing the hard work. When we admit that there is some mystery left in the words of the book, we approach the feeling of mystery that is experienced by the apostles as they witness the transfiguration, or that we experience in the sacraments of baptism and communion. 
In other words, when we mature in our reading of scripture, we are better able to appreciate the great depth and richness that the word of God has to offer. After all, if the Bible is nothing more than a, literal coll a collection of literal statements, what need is there for study? What need is there for the spirit? The foundational heresy of fundamentalism is that it elevates the written word to the point that it would kill the living word. It ends the need for the spirit to move in our lives because there's nothing the spirit could tell us that isn't in the ink on the pages. I'll draw to a close by confessing that there have been moments this week where I've felt so disappointed in the church that raised me that I contemplated leaving. I've been so angry about the hurt that is felt directly by the people that I love that I've wanted to see the whole thing crumble to the ground. But what I'm saying now, and where I have ended up after reflecting on the scripture, is that as we enter into Lent this week, it is the perfect time for us to repent of the ways that we have pushed the spirit out of our church. It is the perfect time for us to turn toward God with open hearts and be resurrected into something more holy. Amen. Would you please join me in prayer? How long, O oh God, how long shall we seek our own reward by trying to keep others from your kingdom? Help us to know the abundance of your love so that we may see that in welcoming others, we draw closer to you. Amen. <laughs>